before I get into the episode, just a couple things. First, if you have an episode idea or a question that you'd like me to deal with in an episode, send an email to catholicdailybrief at gmail.com. And if it's a question I haven't dealt with before, and it's a question appropriate for this format and the aim of this podcast, I'll do my best to make an episode answering the question. Second, if you're interested in hearing my new dramatized audiobook of Robert Hugh Benson's Lord of the World, become a member at patreon.com slash catholicdailybrief. It's a novel about the church and the antichrist and the final confrontation between God and the evil one in this world. So yesterday I put out a free extended preview of the first book of Lord of the World. So give that a listen if you haven't yet. Now on to this episode, episode 65, what is an annulment? And right away I have to say that I only use that title because that term annulment is familiar, but the proper term is declaration of nullity. And we use that term because the church can't annul a valid marriage. It can't cancel a valid marriage, but it can declare it null. So what is a declaration of nullity? In answering this question, we need to understand that first we're starting from the principle that sacraments are real. They were instituted by Christ that they are affected by God. They have a real effect, which is specified by Christ and his church. We see foundations for it in scripture that it's divinely revealed. So, so if you don't really hold that marriage between baptized persons is actually a sacrament, then this episode is not going to be for you because you just see marriage as a human contract. And of course, human contracts can almost always be broken for some reason or another. But we're talking about marriage as defined by Christ and his church, which is a a lifelong union aided by grace for the the growth of a family, that is for the procreation and education of children and for the mutual help of spouses. It's exclusive, it's lifelong, and perhaps most importantly, it is a symbol of Christ's union with his church, of bridegroom and bride. You see this symbolism from the very beginning of scripture all the way up until the very end, from Genesis to Revelation that God reveals himself as the bridegroom to his bride, his chosen people Israel first, and then bridegroom of the church revealed in the New Testament. St. Paul refers to marriage as a great mystery, a great sacrament, and by that he says he means he's referring to Christ and the church. Even the very creation of man and woman in Genesis is a symbol, is is a sacrament, a natural sacrament, so to speak, a natural sign that shows something about God, about the love of the Trinity which is another way to look at marriage. In God's image, he created them, man and woman, he created them. So there's already, naturally speaking, in the union of Adam and Eve, in the union of the sexes, there is a natural symbolism built into it that shows us something about the life-giving love of the Trinity. So if the union of man and woman in marriage is not only a sign of Christ's union with his church, but also the sign of the life-giving love of the Trinity, with that background, you can see why marriage cannot be ended once it is entered in upon sacramentally. Once God makes the union that a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife and the two become one flesh, as we see in Genesis and as quoted by Christ in the Gospels, you can see why the church doesn't accept the breaking of this covenant. It's unfitting that God allow a union that he created as a symbol of his love to be destroyed by human declaration or, of course, by his own power. God's power does not tend to destruction ever. That's unfitting. So the union isn't dissolved by God. 
the union can't be dissolved by man because it's a union created by God. This is the root of the church's rejection of divorce as a reality in the sense that a civil divorce doesn't mean anything about the sacramental union of spouses. It doesn't have any effect whatsoever on the sacramental union of the spouses. So that's where we talk about the declaration of nullity. Many people think that, oh, Catholics just call divorce annulment, but that couldn't be farther from the truth. Of course, the church recognizes that there might be instances in which for the safety or health of one of the spouses or children, there might need to be a separation or even a civil divorce for particular financial or safety or health reasons. It never accepts the claim of divorce as ending the bond between two baptized persons when they are validly married. So a Catholic can never accept divorce as a real termination of a bond. It can be a practical termination for the reasons I mentioned just a second ago, but it can never be seen as the termination or cessation of the sacramental bond because Christ telling us that marriage is two becoming one body or one, or one flesh, you can no more separate those two bodies again than you can cleave a, a body in half and allow the two halves to continue existing. You know, if you cut a body in half, it's going to, it's going to die. Both are going to die. You can't tear them apart again once they become one. Same thing with marriage. You cannot pull the spouses apart again once that union has been made. So if you can't do that, but we still see that there are Catholics who have been previously married, get married again in the church, how does that even happen? Well, as I said at the beginning, a declaration of nullity is not an action by the church on the bond of marriage. It cannot, the bond of marriage cannot be touched by any human power. What a declaration of nullity is, is a declaration that one or more of the conditions necessary for a valid marriage was missing from the very beginning, and therefore what seemed to be a valid marriage from the beginning was not in fact a valid marriage, and therefore the spouses are not actually bound together into one body, even though at the time of the exchange of vows to all external appearances, there was a marriage. So what are these conditions? What are some of these conditions? So of course, the first one would be baptism. You know, people can enter into marriage without being baptized, and that's fine. If one is not uh, baptized, it's not as if they need to get baptized to get married. People can enter into uh, a solemn bond and a solemn union without being baptized. But for a sacrament to take place, the spouses need to be baptized. Baptism is the gateway, the door to all of the other sacraments. So without baptism, a sacrament is not possible. Therefore, if you have a union, a marriage between two baptized persons, even if they're not Catholic, the church considers it a sacrament. You know, any Christian who is baptized gets married to another Christian who is baptized. The church considers it a sacrament. So that's the first condition for sacramental marriage. Another one would be consent. Obviously, one needs to actually intend to and willfully enter into the marriage. And that's what the exchange of vows is for. It's to publicly express the consent. So for that, one needs to have the minimal mental faculties necessary to make a, an act of consent to make a free and independent decision to enter into marriage with at least a basic understanding of what marriage is, that it's lifelong, that it's exclusive, that is, it's a monogamous union, and that it entails sexual cooperation and the procreation of children. So as long as those basic conditions are present between baptized persons, then you have a sacramental marriage, a marriage that really does, by God's power, result in the two becoming one flesh, 
for the rest of their lives that results in them receiving grace necessary for a fruitful marriage. But if there are some conditions, one or, or more conditions that I just listed that are lacking, then of course that bond doesn't occur even if it's celebrated between two baptized persons within you know, the context of a church and exchange of vows. So if someone doesn't consent, that would be an obvious situation in which if there's coercion or they lack the mental ability or maturity to actually make a decision like that, then the marriage would be invalid. If a person has an intention contrary to fidelity or exclusivity or a lifelong marriage, or if by their actions they do not consent even though they speak the words of consent to those things, then that would invalidate a marriage. If, for example, someone is unfaithful before, during, and continuously after their marriage, that would be an indication that they had an intention contrary to fidelity, contrary to the lifelong nature of marriage. So it need not be that one explicitly make known that they don't intend exclusivity or fidelity, but the church in investigation can find that a person by their actions or by their intentions made known to others, for example, that they did not in fact intend what they were saying or promising in their exchange of vows, then that would be a sign that the marriage never took place, that there was not a valid union of the spouses. And of course, another example would be deception. If someone actively was deceiving the spouse about some important characteristic or some important element of their life or their intentions, then that would be an invalid marriage. Another intention they need to have is openness to life. That is, one cannot validly enter into marriage having an intention contrary to procreation of children. It might happen that they not ever have children because of various circumstances that they can't control, but their openness to life needs to be an intention. So if one had an intention contrary to that at the time of marriage, and that were to be determined or discovered later, then the marriage would have been invalid from the very beginning. So all of these things need to be present and are presumed to be present unless there is an indication to the contrary. But if later in the process of investigating the bond, it be found that one of these conditions was lacking, then the church can simply declare, we're not ending this marriage. It was not a marriage to begin with because one of the essential components was missing. That's what a declaration of nullity is. So hopefully it's, it's clear how different this is than say a civil divorce, which is a, a civil declaration that the bond for all intents and purposes and for all practical elements is no longer binding. It's a contract that has been dissolved but the church only allows the spouses to go their separate ways, so to speak, with regards to the marriage, is if it determines that there was no valid marriage. So why is it that people still call this Catholic divorce? Well, mostly it's because, especially in the United States, the investigation of the marital bond is not done very carefully. Many dioceses and many tribunals and bishops themselves just see it as basically a divorce, as a a pastoral decision to help people go their separate ways without uh, much conflict. And in doing so, they scandalize the faithful because they show them that they think marriage isn't really a lifelong bond affected by God's grace. They just say, we want to help these people move on, so let's give them a declaration of nullity. That's a grave injustice and a grave counter witness to the reality of marriage. So that's why a lot of people, I think, justifiably think it's just Catholic divorce because that's how many bishops and dioceses treat the process of the investigation of the bond of marriage. One important condition that needs to be mentioned as well is, of course, a previous marriage. 
if two validly married people get divorced and go their separate ways and then marry another person, this would be considered adultery. And the main reason that that's considered adultery is because Jesus said so explicitly in the Gospels. And you can see with this definition of marriage that how that makes sense, that if you are validly joined by God's power to your spouse, then to marry, quote unquote, or to join yourself with in an intimate union, another person would be adultery. Even if in your day-to-day -day life, you have ceased contact with your spouse and there's obviously no more living together because of a civil divorce and all of that, the bond remains because the church doesn't recognize the power of any civil law or declaration to break the bond of marriage. So to cohabitate or be intimate with another person while you are validly married to another would constitute adultery. So this is the reason why there's a lot of controversy and talk about divorced and remarried people refraining from receiving communion. It's not supposed to be some public shaming, but marriage as a public institution, as opposed to say, someone who is in the state of mortal sin because of a private sin, they also shouldn't receive communion. But because it's not public, there is not the same treatment of it. And there can't be the same treatment of it because a priest distributing communion can't read souls. But marriage is a public institution. And the same goes for, say, a politician being refused communion. It's not due to the sin. It's not due to the fact that the person is a sinner. Because again, still the priest can't read souls. But it's due to the public nature of it and wanting to avoid scandal that marriage is a public institution, communion is a public declaration of one's belief in Christ's teaching and the teaching of his church. And so if one is in a public state contrary to that, then that is why there is refusal of communion. It is medicinal in a sense too, that one ought to correct their situation so that there be no public scandal if they receive Holy Communion. And this seems strange to people now because most people nowadays consider marriage as a private thing, but it has never been considered private. That's why it's done in public with witnesses. So the advisement of those who are married, divorced, and then remarried without a declaration of nullity of the prior marriage, that they refrain from communion is simply the same advice a priest would give one who is in grave sin even privately. The difference is that if one continues in a state of, we would say, public adultery, then that is known to the community and would constitute confusion and scandal for them if a person who is in a continuous state of public disagreement with the teaching of Christ go up and receive the very body and blood of Christ. You can see how something like that would be harmful to the, the faithful present. Uh, and it's not even specific to uh, the, the most common situation for this would be, of course, those who are divorced and remarried without a declaration of nullity. But you could think of situations similar. You could have someone publicly declare that he disagrees with the church's teaching on this or that and makes it very publicly known. Uh, such a person also should be refused communion until they publicly rectify that situation because you know, the, the sacred ministers have an obligation, even though they themselves are very sinful, sinful fallen human beings. We're not dealing with publicly judging the state of one's soul. We are dealing with the obligation to publicly protect the rest of the faithful from any profanation of a sacrament or public confusion about the teaching of the church, especially in the context of the most sacred action, which is the mass and the reception of the Holy Eucharist. So the, so the situation of, like, like I just said, a politician who is Catholic, 
but publicly declares opposition to a central tenet of the faith or promotes it through legislation or whatever, they ought to be denied communion as well until they publicly rectify it. The exact point of this is made even clearer, you know, the fact that it's not judging one soul, but say you have two people that are actually living chastely, you know, as brother and sister, they're divorced, remarried, they haven't received a declaration of nullity, but they are, for whatever reason, living together as brother and sister and actually living a chaste life, they still shouldn't receive communion because of the possible confusion. So they might not even be in a state of sin, but if publicly their living situation would confuse or harm the, the faithful's understanding of marriage or the sacraments, then they also ought to refrain from communion to avoid that, even if they aren't in grave sin. Or they make it publicly known the nature of their situation, saying, for example, uh, due to particular necessity, we are living in the same place, but we're living chastely as brother and sister, and we're also addressing the situation of our previous marriages, seeking a declaration of nullity from the church because we believe that we are our previous our previous marriages were invalid and we want to be free to marry. Something like that then could allow such people to approach the sacrament again. But that that's an example just to make it clear that the point of divorced and remarried people not receiving communion is not a public shaming or a public judgment. It is a defensive mechanism, if you want to put it that way, for the protection of the faith of the rest of the faithful. So just to summarize, the church believes two baptized persons who have the proper intentions and conditions and they exchange consent, a marriage is formed there by God's grace that cannot be broken by any human power. There do exist many situations in which perhaps later in the marriage, one spouse finds that those conditions may have been lacking in themselves or in the other spouse, and then they can justifiably seek church guidance on that and seek a declaration of nullity. There's no problem with that. Uh, a married person has a right to have that investigated. And hopefully the church, their local church, discerns it carefully. And then such a person, if they receive a declaration of nullity, then they are free to marry again with no problem. But because of the nature of the sanctity of marriage. This is why the church takes these matters very seriously, why she condemns and rejects the claims of civil divorce, and also why she's very careful to make sure that the public not be misled when someone is in what we call an irregular situation with regard to their marriage. If you would like more thorough answers to these questions, I would recommend a book by a very prominent and helpful canonist named Edward Peters. He wrote a book called Annulments in the Catholic Church, Straight Answers to Tough Questions. I'd recommend that highly if you have any questions that remain about this difficult but also important topic.